Good morning, everybody. Rather more formally, Reverend Fathers, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to FLI's conference on why be a Catholic. One of the most important questions anybody faces in their entire lives. I know how important it is to certain people, for I have here a letter from Cardinal Seurat. And this is what it says. Dear Mr. Pollard, thank you for your letter in which you ask permission to reproduce the text of my Chartres sermon in a forthcoming book. That's the magazine outset. Why be a Catholic? I am happy to grant permission and I wish you every success with your endeavours. One of our speakers later on, Gabriel Kubi, has been personally identified by Pope Emeritus Benedict as being a doughty fighter, one to listen to, and one that he also educated himself. So, we have a very international presentation today. We have no English, but I'm the only Englishman. I'm not even presenting. Anyway, let's get down to brass tacks. Our first presenter is Father Armand de Mallory from the traditional order of priests, the Fraternity of St. Peter. Highly recommended. I, myself, my wife, go to Bedford every Sunday, which is run by the FSSP, we hear with the Mass is wonderful, and we hear that most rare of things, ladies and gentlemen, old-fashioned, straightforward sermons. They do still exist. <coughs> Father is an, a, a native of Bonjou in France, and for those English who are rather challenged in finding places around the world, Bonjou's about halfway up France on the left-hand side. Is that right? On the left-hand side, no. Father is the superior of the English Apostolate of the Fraternity. If you ever get a chance, and near Warrington, go to Mass there. That's where Father de Mallory is based. But I'm not, I'm not here to speak anymore. We're here to hear Father. Father de Mallory, the floor is yours. Very good that we started with this. Sorry. Thank you. It's very good that we started this day uh, with Holy Mass and uh, this conference with the uh, praying of uh, the Rosary. Our Blessed Lady is here with us and it is very much, I believe, at her invitation that we are gathered here today. 
As you have seen in the uh, beautiful flyers which were distributed, I will speak on the Holy Eucharist. Rediscovering our Eucharistic faith is key to evangelization. Let us be very concise first. We believe that the sacred host is God present amongst us. And without him, we can do nothing, let alone evangelize. The deeper our Eucharistic faith, the more fruitful our witness to the world. The church grows from the Eucharistic sacrifice and presence and communion. Committed Eucharistic adorers will foster lasting evangelization. To evangelize, yes, is very important. If we are here today, dear friends, it's also because uh, we have received the faith from other people. Today is the feast of the English and Welsh martyrs. We had mass in red for the blood they shed out of love for the Lord Jesus and his Immaculate Church. If it had not been for their courage and sacrifice, we would not be freely organizing an event about the Catholic faith today. You and I would be in jail somewhere. Perhaps it will come again. Perhaps it's coming soon. But at least now we are free. It is because they have allowed this through their witness and sacrifice. It is also today the Feast of St. Monica, the wonderful mother of St. Augustine. And again, she individually transmitted the faith to her son. You know that he was a bit wayward, and uh, she prayed a lot for him. And he describes himself as the son of so many tears. So any of us who uh, here have responsibility for younger people, parents here, grandparents, uh, do take courage from that example and continue to pray intercede of the sacrifices for the faith to be transmitted to your children as well. I give these two examples to connect the talk with uh, the, the saints of this very day and also to set the perspective of evangelizing. We know the sentence new evangelization. So what is the new evangelization? Blessed John Paul II describes it in his encyclical Redemptorist Missio in 1990, where entire groups of the baptized have lost a living sense of the faith or even no longer consider themselves members of the church and live a life far removed from Christ and his gospel. In this case, what is needed is, he says, a new evangelization or a re-evangelization. The new evangelization pertains to a very specific group of people, that is the lapsed, the fallen away Christians. Most of us, we know people who are lapsed, people who were baptized in the Catholic Church and do not practice anymore, do not believe. New evangelization is very much about them. Perhaps we need to be uh, 
very humble and courageous and say, when, when we call it new evangelization, we must admit we have failed. Because in fact, if it is re-evangelization, it means that they were evangelized before and they were dis-evangelized. There has been a dis-evangelization. And what we need to do is not new as if it were to add to things. No, it is new in as much as it has to be rebuilt. What has been destroyed must be rebuilt. This is the truth. Dear friends, in our former Christian countries, lapsation and apostasy are rife. It is no good to say that the number of priests per practicing Catholics is the same or even higher than 50 years ago as far as percentages go. If this only disguises the fact that when, say, in 1969, 1,000 souls attended Holy Mass every Sunday in a given parish, and now, in 2019, only 100 attend Mass on a Sunday with one old single priest running in between three churches, we ask ourselves, where are the 900 missing souls? Where are they? Those who have died, where are they? Are they in hell? Are they in purgatory? Apparently, they're all in heaven, since funerals nowadays are systematic canonization of the deceased. And where are their children? Their children are lapsed. And where are their grandchildren? Their grandchildren were never born or never conceived. And where are the missing pastors? Some left the priesthood long ago. Some are in jail. Some others never got ordained. Why? Because at seminary, they prayed the Holy Rosary and they did not support unnatural life. We must have the courage, the humility to admit failure. The Catholic faith and church is in decline almost everywhere, not only in the West, and this not only because of persecution. Even in places where statistics show numeric growth or stability, a happy future is not to be taken for granted if, if at the heart of these communities, one does not find only that and all that which Holy Mother Church has always and everywhere believed and professed. Dear friends, what is the core of our faith? I once read from a martyred priest that was in a novel, God is love, Jesus is God, the host is Jesus. God is love, Jesus is God, the host is Jesus. That's really the core of our faith. Pope John Paul II wrote a beautiful encyclical, which I encourage you to read if you haven't. That was on the 17th of April, 2003, Ecclesia de Eucharistia. I read from the introduction. The church draws her life from the Eucharist. This truth does not simply express a daily experience of faith, but recapitulates the heart of the mystery of the church. In a variety of ways, she joyfully experiences the constant fulfillment of the promise. Lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. But in the Holy Eucharist, through the changing of bread and wine into the body and blood of the Lord, she rejoices in this presence with unique intensity. Ever since Pentecost, when the church, the people of the new covenant, began her pilgrim journey, 
towards uh, her heavenly homeland. The divine sacrament has continued to mark the passing of her days, filling them with confident hope. The Second Vatican Council rightly proclaimed that the Eucharistic sacrifice is the source and summit of the Christian life. For the Most Holy Eucharist contains the Church's entire spiritual wealth, Christ himself, our Passover and living bread, through his own flesh, now made living and life-giving by the Holy Spirit, he offers life to men. Consequently, the gaze of the church is constantly turned to her Lord present in the sacrament of the altar, in which he discovers the full manifestation of his boundless love. Pope John Paul gets a bit more specific, paragraph 60. It is not a matter of inventing a new program. The program already exists. It is the plan found in the gospel and in the living tradition, with a capital T. It is the same as ever. Ultimately, it has its center in Christ himself, who is to be known, loved, and imitated, so that in him we may live the life of the Trinity and with him transform history until its fulfillment in the heavenly Jerusalem. The implementation of this program of a renewed impetus in Christian living passes through the Eucharist. Every commitment to holiness, the Pope goes on, every activity aimed at carrying out the church's mission, every work of pastoral planning must draw the strength it needs from the Eucharistic mystery and in turn be directed to that mystery as its culmination, not as an aside, not as an option, not if you like it. No, that is the heart and fulfillment, the Holy Eucharist of every pastoral undertaking, every diocesan plan, every you know, new program and pastoral uh, setting. This all stems from and leads back to the Holy Eucharist. Why? The Pope goes on. In the Eucharist, we have Jesus. We have his redemptive sacrifice. We have his redemptive sacrifice, a terminology we must bear in mind because that is essential to understand what the Eucharist is about. We have his resurrection. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have adoration obedience and love of the Father. Were we to disregard the Eucharist, how could we overcome our own deficiency? And the last quote from Pope John Paul in Ecclesia de Eucharistia, <coughs> beautiful encyclical, that's paragraph 61. The mystery of the Eucharist, sacrifice, presence, and banquet does not allow for reduction or exploitation does not allow for reduction or exploitation. It must be experienced and lived in its integrity, both in its celebration, that is the liturgy of the Mass or adoration, and in the intimate converse with Jesus, which takes place after receiving communion or in a prayerful moment of Eucharistic adoration apart from Mass. These are times when the church is firmly built up now that's evangelization. That is the church growing when each believer takes his relationship 
her relationship to our Lord in the Eucharist seriously and proves it through recollection, daily attendance to at his worship in the church and mass if possible. The church is firmly built up and it becomes clear that what she truly is, one, holy, Catholic, apostolic, the people, the temple and family of God, the body and bride of Christ, enlivened by the Holy Spirit, the universal sacrament of salvation and a hierarchically structured communion. I skip a bit um, for Benedict's uh, post-synodal exhortation, Sacramentum Caritatis, on the Eucharist as the source and summit of the church life and mission. That was in February 2007. I encourage you again to read uh, this text. All this is you know, available online for free on the Vatican website, so do uh, uh, have a click and, uh, and you will find. For Benedict tells us there, I encourage families in particular to draw inspiration and strength from this sacrament. We are at a conference centered on Catholic families. Well, this is a great uh, reminder. Uh, Pope Benedict says, the love between man and woman, openness to life, and the raising of children are privileged spheres in which the Eucharist can reveal its power to transform life and give it its full meaning. If we had the time, if you had a uh, uh, hundred of hours, I would read integrally to you the beautiful book, a spiritual classic by Don Chotard, called The Soul of the Apostolate, published, I think, in 1907. That's available online in English. Don Chotard tells us, at a time when clergy were trying to find ways to evangelize, it was in a after the Industrial Revolution uh, in France, and there was a lot of a working population and a great need uh, to bring Christ to these people, a bit like us, you know, over a century later. Don Chotard was an enclosed monk, a contemplative, and uh, you would say it's a paradox, he wrote a book which is a masterpiece on evangelization. And I encourage you to read that book. What he says is that, no plans, no devices, no strategy will ever be successful to evangelize unless at the very heart there is an intimate relationship with Jesus and essentially with Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. So Don Chotard, long before the encyclicals I quoted by John Paul II and by Pope Benedict, reminds us this truth. To evangelize cannot be successful if it is our initiative, if it is just our skills, whichever they are. It will not go very far. It will not last. We have to be channels, instruments at the service of Christ really present in the Holy Eucharist. And I quote now briefly from Don Chotard. The entire success of the apostolate depends on one thing, an interior life centered on the blessed Eucharist. The aim of the incarnation, and therefore the aim of every apostolate, is to raise humanity to a divine level. Christ became man, that man might become God. 
the only begotten Son of God, desiring us to be sharers of his divinity, assumed our nature in order that having become man, he might make men gods. Now it is in the Eucharist, or more accurately, in the Eucharistic life, that in that is in a substantial inner life nourished at the divine banquet that the apostle, that's you, apostles, that's me, that the apostle assimilates the divine life. We have our Lord's own words. They are absolutely clear and leave no room for equivocation. Don't shut our quotes, our Lord. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. The Eucharistic life is simply the life of our Lord in us, not only by the indispensable state of grace, which is, of course, a prerequisite to receive Holy Communion. We must not have a grave sin unabsorbed on our soul to receive the Lord, but also by the superabundance of his action. Quote again from our Lord, I am come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. If the apostle is going to overflow with divine life and pour it out upon the faithful, and if the richest source for divine life he can find is the Eucharist, how can we get away from the conclusion that his works, her works, will have little efficacy except through the action of the Eucharist on those who are to be either directly or indirectly dispensers of that life through these works? I would go on and on on Don Chotard, but now I think you, you know about him if you didn't. And so I encourage you to, to buy the book uh, or download it for free as I did uh, online. I think we all agree at this stage that we need to evangelize and that the success of evangelization stems from our intimacy with the Lord met in the sacrament of his love where he gives himself the Holy Eucharist. But, there is a but. But we cannot leave from the Eucharist unless we are taught what it is. And we haven't been taught what it is. There is a terrible collapse of the Eucharistic faith. I'm going to spell out truth which a child of seven would have known by heart and understood for First Holy Communion 50 years ago. I am certain that what I'm going to say now will be news to some of us here. And it's not our fault. We haven't been taught. Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is really, truly and substantially present in the host 
and chalice under the externals of bread and wine with his body, his blood, his soul, and his divinity. This presence occurs through transubstantiation in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And this regardless of the participation of the people. And this presence remains for as long as the externals of bread and wine remain. This is not known. It is not formally denied, but it would be a surprise to many nominal Catholics and even, I hate to say, even to a good number of practicing Catholics. We have by stages uh, uh, shifted to a symbolic understanding of the presence of our Lord Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. We put on the same level the modes of presence of God in his creation whereby he keeps into existence the trees outside, the cloud, the earth, even the cells of our body. That's one thing. We put this almost on the same level as his presence you know, with his people gathered in his name which is obviously a higher mode of presence of God in the world. And we put that on the same level almost as his presence is his word spoken in a solemn setting like the gospel proclaimed in the mass. And yet it's not the same. And yet we put that on the same level, the same uh, intensity of presence, so to speak, as his true, real, substantial presence in the Holy Eucharist. In other words, we are not capable anymore of distinguishing between modes of presence. And yet, when you write a letter to somebody, it's not the same as when you speak over the phone to that person. And when you enter the room and shake hands or speak with the person face to face, it's obviously a higher mode of presence. It is the same and much more so in the Holy Eucharist. What also we have lost as a truth is the reality of transubstantiation, that the externals of bread and wine remain while the inside, so to speak, truly, literally, substantially become the body and blood of the Lord. We have been contaminated by rationalism and this idea that nothing exists beyond the range of our five physical senses. We don't see Jesus under the externals of bread, so he can't be there. What about your dog or cat at home as we speak? Have they ceased to exist because you can't see them just now? Obviously, there are many things which exist beyond the reach of our senses. It would be foolishness to see they cease to exist when our senses can't reach them. It's just that our senses are limited. Transubstantiation, the real presence of our Lord in the second host and in the chalice, is also a reminder that 
the same God who makes himself present in the sacrament of his love is the same who created out of nothing the world, the stars, the galaxies. Do we believe that he is almighty or do we not? It would be a paradox to say, oh yes, God created, you know, heaven and earth. But no, he can't be in the host. Why? What about the yet uh, forgotten doctrine of concomitance, whereby in the host we don't have only the body of our Lord, but also his precious blood? And according to which, in the chalice, we don't have only the precious blood of our Lord, but also his body. When I explain this at length, as I did in that little book, Ego, Amy, It Is I, which you will find uh, for sale uh, after this talk, when I explain this, this is a point which people are very surprised to hear about. And they start wondering if Father de Mallory is not turning a heretic. Um, when I say that indeed in the host, I repeat, there is not only the flesh of our Lord, his body, there is also the blood to irrigate that body. Moreover, there is also his human soul to keep together the two physical components, the flesh and the blood. And there is the divinity uh, whereby it is really our Lord, his true divine person who is there. And the same applies to the chalice. Of course, the transubstantiation is directly from the substance of the wine to that of the blood of the Lord, but because he is the full Lord in every droplet of the precious blood, the blood, so to speak, calls to itself the body of the Lord and his human soul and his divinity. Therefore, in the chalice and in the cyborium, we have the Lord present with his body, blood, soul, divinity. Now, this truth is fundamental. This explains, I mean, the ignorance of it, why some people are legitimately offended when they cannot receive Holy Communion under both kinds, because they have never been told about concomitants, and so they rightly believe, uh, mistakenly, but due to their subjective uh, understanding, that uh, in the host there is only the body, and in the chalice there is only the precious blood. Such is not the faith of the church. Under either species or externals, we have the Lord fully and entirely present. Another uh, doctrine and practical uh, consequence is about the size, the size of the Holy Eucharist. If it be a very large host consecrated, like for a Eucharistic Congress, um, like we had um, in Liverpool, where, where I live, or in Quebec or Dublin, where I was, Eucharistic Congresses, so that the host be seen from a long distance. Do we have more of the Lord in the large host than we have in the host of this size, which is uh, consecrated by the priest at Mass? No, we don't. Do we have less of the Lord in the small host given to the faithful at Mass? No, we don't. If there are more faithful than hosts, a happy situation, and that one breaks into two, one small host, does one person get only half of the Lord and the other the other half? No. But then, 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 dear friends, is the dreadful consequence 
when on one's fingers one discerns a whitish fragment which wasn't on it before receiving the host? Is there less of the Lord Jesus in that fragment from the consecrated host? No. There we have God made man, Jesus Christ, really, truly, substantially present with his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Size doesn't matter. What about, as an analogy, the child in the womb? When we were this big, were we less of a human person than we are now a bit bigger sitting on these chairs? No. Size, we call it philosophically an accident. It is irrelevant to what the thing is. And this applies very much to the Blessed Sacrament. Perhaps I will just, on this point, which is so important, I will quote briefly from uh, the Catechism. Or I will start with, uh, with the Didache, or Doctrine of the Twelve Apostles, probably written in the year 65 to 80. Now, that's quite a while back. One could say that's the first catechism promulgated by the church uh, of which we have, you know, a, a copy. I quote, as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and then when gathered became one mass, so may that church be gathered from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. And uh, the Didache uh, a bit later tells us about the uh, fragments, and I quote here, uh, a bit later from St. Cyril of Jerusalem in his catechetical instructions. He explains how to receive the sacred host in the Holy Communion, partake of it, the Holy Body, giving heed lest you lose any portion thereof. For whatever you lose is evidently a loss to you as if it were from one of your own members. For tell me, if anyone gave you grains of gold, would you not hold them with all carefulness, being on your guard against losing any of them and suffering loss? Will you not then much more carefully keep watch that not a crumb fall from you of what is more precious than gold and precious stones? This wasn't written yesterday. Eh? It's uh, the very beginning of the church, St. Cyril of Jerusalem. But I will start with, um, in fact, before my conclusion, um, with recent catechisms. Catechisms published by the Holy See are authoritative synthesis of the perennial Catholic faith. They are designed for whom? Not for expert theologians to debate upon, but for every baptized Catholic to hold firmly and to profess clearly. Consequently, any unnecessary and uncertain elements will be taken out. With this in mind, it is significant that the truth about the fragments mentioned above has been found important enough 
to be affirmed in all such catechisms. The latest published by Pope Benedict's, that his compendium in 2005, teaches the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. He is present whole and entire in each of the Eucharistic species and in each of their parts. In 1992, Pope John Paul II had stated in his own catechism of the Catholic Church that Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species and whole and entire in each of their parts in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. Before him, in 1908, Pope St. Pius X had affirmed in his own catechism of Christian doctrine Yes, the same Jesus Christ is just as much in a particle of a host as in a whole host. And this was no new doctrine since in 1566, the Roman Catechism of the Council of Trent also stated that, quote, Christ whole and entire is contained not only under either species, but also in each particle of either species, unquote. Species mean, means bread or wine, the externals, what looks like bread or wine. And this, of course, is consistent with what I quoted before of St. Cyril of Jerusalem. So, dear friends, you see how the face of the church is anonymous and so constant on this important uh, uh, question of our Eucharistic faith. We said that we can't evangelize unless we are united with our Lord in the Eucharist. We said we can't achieve that unless we are taught what the Holy Eucharist is. But my friends, catechisms, encyclicals, even if they were faithfully and systematically taught in every Catholic school and parish, which we know is not the case anymore. But even if, that would be of little avail, unless in the liturgical celebration, in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the words spoken, the gestures performed, are as consistent with the doctrine as possible. In other words, we can have in print and on our telephones all the truth about the Holy Eucharist, but if day in, day out, practicing Catholics, those who are not lapsed, see the Eucharist treated in a way which does not express this deep faith and reverence, then the faith will not be rooted in us we will more or less understand it as something symbolic, as something optional. And this is, I'm sorry to have to say, part of the difficulty in which we find ourselves. I know that I have only two minutes left, so. I don't have the time to uh, go into all the abuses which we witness in the celebration of Holy Mass. 
all these instances when we see the law of the church, and I speak of the new missal in English, uh, is not abided by. But just in passing, when we see casual gestures and poor quality of sacred vessels, when we see them handled by anyone, when we see them purified, even sometimes outside the corporal, or not purified at all for that matter, when we see no genuflecting when walking by the tabernacle, when indeed the tabernacle is hidden away to the side or is of a very ugly design, when there is no kneeling at consecration and at Holy Communion, when there is no thanksgiving because it's not encouraged and people start chatting anyway immediately after the end of Mass, when there is no or little silence during Holy Mass, when there is chatting even sometime during the Mass, when there is no reminder of the conditions to receive licitly our Eucharistic Lord, that is to be a Catholic, to be in state of grace, to have been fasting for at least one hour, when there is no teaching from the pulpit on grace and sin, in relation to Eucharistic communion, when recurrent sins, especially in our internet age, are not being uh, denounced for what they are. I speak of contraception, of pornography, of adultery, even of missing Sunday Mass, which is a grave matter and a grave sin if one does not have a proportionate reason. When there is no regular time for confession uh, as a condition to Holy Communion, when even Eucharistic adoration outside of Mass is minimalistic, no priest or deacon exposing or blessing, a mere curtain drawn by a layperson, one or two cheap candles, no rota enforcing uninterrupted presence of adorers. Dear friends, with all this taking place, it is no surprise that the faith, the dogmatic definitions of what the Eucharist is doesn't really become implemented in our lives because what we see doesn't support the doctrine. My conclusion is that there has been a fundamental swap in the Mass or the conception of the Mass between on the one hand a fraternal meal and on the other the divine sacrifice. Very briefly, Adam and Eve had a vertical relationship with God. They were created in state of grace. Through sin, they broke that vertical relationship with God. As a consequence, their horizontal relationship between uh, each other was broken as well. When we insist on Mass being a fraternal meal, what we mean is that we want the horizontal brotherly love to be uh, alive again. And this is good, and this is true. Where it doesn't work is when we put this first. Brotherly horizontal love can only be repaired, reactivated, after the vertical relationship between men and God has been reactivated, 
Now, how is that vertical relationship between mankind and God repaired? Through the holy, the death of our Lord Jesus on Good Friday, on Mount Golgotha. This is how humanity was redeemed and how reconciliation vertically with God was achieved. This is why Holy Mass has always been understood and defined and is first a sacrifice and independence of this, a meal. Holy Mass is first our reconciliation with Christ through his death on the cross and independence of this, a reconciliation with our brethren. In the last five decades, the perception and sometimes official writings is very much that the Mass is primarily, essentially, a fraternal gathering and does not exclude a sacrificial dimension somewhere. I would like to suggest that if one could uh, bring back the order of precedence, put the sacrifice first, we would see a real reconciliation among men and this indeed would be the true vehicle of evangelization. When we came here from the underground or from our houses, I'm sure we met many people who possibly are not Catholic. There would have been Hindus, Muslims, Jews, there would have been atheists, there would have been people with same-sex inclination, there would have been any sorts, any kind. And yet, each of them has been created by the one true God, the Holy Trinity, with a design of love. And that design is to be fulfilled through each of these people becoming a good practicing Catholic. This is God's will. We, dear friends, are surely no better than anyone else. Through no merits of our part, we have been received into the church, baptized into it. Our fulfillment is to surrender ourselves with our weaknesses as well and sins and tell the Eucharistic Lord to use us as vehicles of channels of his grace so that he may reach more and more of his beloved human children. We ask this through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Thank you. We've got a super speaker for you, so make sure that you're not going to be late. Look forward to seeing you then. Ten minutes from now, we'll start again. <laughs>